and welcome to another virtual online class. Um, as we get started today, uh, I was considering something, and I, I along with uh, everybody checking in, and you guys do so well about saying where you're coming from and all that, and putting that in the comment uh, sections, uh, I'm also anticipating what we're going to teach for this fall. Uh, because I think this idea of the the promises to the fathers um, uh, and the promises that we make to the fathers, uh, I think we we'll be able to roll uh, probably for another few weeks. And then as we look at this fall, I've had at least one request or some idea about uh, each Sunday, uh, maybe providing some background information for that week's Come Follow Me. Now, I've mentioned before that I was a little nervous about touching Come Follow Me because I think there's some excellent online resources that are actually teaching Come Follow Me. Um, if we decided to do that for this fall, then I would be tempted to just provide like some background information for the week uh, in, in your Come Follow Me uh, studying that you will be doing and uh, the other option is to find is to go to some other areas such as the Old Testament, uh, which would also be great, and I would love doing either one. So uh, maybe today in your comments, if you wanted to go ahead and throw out uh, some ideas about what you might want to be looking at uh, for this fall. In other words, what exactly would be uh, helpful uh, for you? So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get it started today with uh, the treasury of the heart. Uh, and you'll kind of see where this is going in just a second. Now, I want to start with, with uh, this picture. This is on the, uh, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see the, the north shore up here. And this ends up being this plain area right here is, is kind of the traditional uh, site of the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes uh, is in this area. There's a planal area at the north end of the lake and then it rises up into some mountains, especially over more on the east side. Um, now, when we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we also have to remember that uh, the Gospels we have to remember the order that the Gospels were written in. And when we were talking about this last year, we talked about the fact that the very first Gospel out of the shoot, of course, was Mark, which was done as a play, and then written down to a certain extent around 60 AD. Uh, Matthew wrote after that with Mark in front of him. And then Luke wrote a few years after that with Matthew in front of him and we think Mark in front of him. And it's interesting that the writers of Luke ended up making some changes in the the Sermon on the Mount that weren't there originally in, in Matthew. Okay, now with that then, um, let's start with, I want to go to Luke 6. And Luke 6 is going to, is going to say this, and, it, and, it, and it's going to actually give us the setting of what is traditionally known as the Sermon on the Plain, which in my belief is actually the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's just that a different writer, uh, writers of Luke, were going to uh, distinguish what they, actually how they said it with what Matthew had written with the Sermon on the Mount. The mountain, I think, being 
the mountains that back up that north end of the Sea of Galilee. So we get to Luke uh, 6. And it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to a mountain in order to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God, um, needing kind of that that me time as he was uh, wont to do. Then it says, And when it was day, he called his disciples and chose twelve from among them, whom he called apostles. So you have to picture that he's kind of up in the mountain, almost like kind of going up into the temple to pray. The disciples are gathered uh, very close by. When he comes, when he's finished with praying, he comes out. And what he's going to end up doing is choosing 12 among them. And now he's going to constitute the the quorum of the 12 apostles for the first time uh, and and begin to move forward. And he called those apostles. Now, you have to, you have to, this is one of those readings with Luke 6. You've got to read it very carefully because it's done in a certain way. And if you can pull back and see the picture of what the writers of Luke are trying to tell us, you can see the visual of this, suddenly the whole thing makes sense. Uh, and maybe in a different reading, maybe than you've ever looked at uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount or the or the Sermon on the Plain. Now, it's going to say, and he came down with them. So imagine he's walking with the disciples, and now the newly minted twelve, and he stood on a level spot, probably down somewhere in this area, with a crowd of his disciples with him. And a large group of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from Tyre and Sidon near the seashore. Now, let me tr- so, so let me translate that for a sec. Uh, there's a large group of people and they would have taken boats like this and, and they're all coming across because this was that area where they would use boats to get across uh, that upper Galilee very quickly. But look at where they're coming from. We've got Judea and Jerusalem. So they're coming from down south and from Jerusalem. And he says, and the writers of Luke want us to know, and from Tyre and Sidon. These are Greek cities farther up on the coast, more towards Lebanon, present-day Lebanon, but farther up on the coast. What, what, he's, what he's actually telling you, and the, and the readers of Luke would have understood this very clearly, this was a mix of Jews and Greeks. Judah and pagans mixed together coming to hear Jesus in mass. Because he says that there was a large group of people from... So picture this, dotted with boats, some coming from over here, some from over there, and they're all gathering down here for Jesus to come down out of the mountain, and they look up, and he's coming down into this area with his disciples behind him, and probably the twelve still kind of in shock about being the twelve, the apostles, and now they're going to watch what Jesus does with this large group of people uh, in front of him. It says, they, the group of people, came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. And those troubled by unclean spirits were healed. 
So, so what they're what? What's these disciples? These new apostles are watching their savior reach out among Jews and Gentiles and pagans, and even those that uh, unclean spirits. Why would that be important? Because they were ritually unclean. It wouldn't matter whether they were a Jew or a Greek or a Samaritan. Wouldn't matter if they are. And filled with an unclean spirit, they are they are off limits. You don't even go close to them. And here was Jesus going to Jews and Greeks and pagans and the unclean and and healing them. What a great teaching moment for these disciples, right? And these apostles to go, look at what he's doing. And the whole crowd sought to touch him. Again, from an idea of cleanliness, here is Jesus, who is a devout Jew, touching pagans, touching Gentiles, touching the unclean, touching lepers, touching, touching, touching. And we could have a whole class on the touch of the Savior because he touched everybody. With the Nephites, the first thing that he did is he had them come forward to him at Bountiful and touch him. And we, again, we could do a whole lesson on the personal touch of the Savior on a one-by-one, very intimate, personal nature. Okay? The whole crowd sought to touch him because power went out from him, and, and they said, and he healed everyone. So everyone is being healed completely in the sight of these disciples and the twelve who are watching in amazement him work with this mixed crowd of people and making no distinction whatsoever about who he would heal and how he would take care of them and be be involved. This coming from a devout Jew. Now, have that all in mind. Can put that in... Yeah, just you've got to kind of picture this because then what he then says makes much more sense if you'll understand the setting. And this and this is one of those cases where the setting is critical. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples. Now, <laughs> picture that one. Okay. Now we have we have the plain filled with people. We have Jesus who has just healed them. We have the disciples and the twelve a little higher up who followed him down the mountain and watched the healing process at work. Then he's going to speak, but who is he going to direct his comments to? He lifted up his eyes to his disciples, they're above him, and said, And everything he's about to say, he's going to say to the disciples looking up. But from their vantage point, they're looking at Jesus and the crowd and the lake and the boats over his shoulder. Jesus has just set up an amazing uh, object lesson of this mixed, diverse group right behind him as he teaches the disciples principles that they can hear, but also in the hearing of these, this crowd that has come to hear him. 
not yet disciples, maybe not even yet believers, but knowing that they have been touched by power, this is a powerful man, and, and now that they've been healed, they're in a position to hear him. But this direction he's going to give is going to be given to the disciples, and specifically to the twelve, and I believe that if we're going to look at the Sermon on the Plain and or the Sermon at the Mount, I think this is leadership training. This is Jesus teaching his disciples how to be disciples of God, how to teach, who to teach, how to go about it, and what to keep in mind. And, and so we're going to get everything that we know about when he starts talking about into the Beatitudes blessed are you who are poor he's not just saying bless all poor he's saying blessed are you who are poor because he did draw he did take from the disciples some that were more wealthy like Matthew the tax collector or, or uh, Peter and Simon and those guys who weren't wealthy, but they did own their own fishing business. And then he's going to take others as well, and then especially the, the other disciples. Blessed are you, poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Tell me, that wouldn't make a difference with the group of people just listening over his shoulder, that there is a kingdom available to them. But again, he's speaking to the disciples. Blessed are you who hunger now because you will be filled. There is a filling coming to your hunger. Now, this is one of those, this next line I think is so critical. I don't know how many uh, arguments or things that have ever been written coming from the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Trying to somehow explain, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, was it perfect? I don't know if it's perfect. It means whole. It means complete. It means, you know, and and written and talked about trying to understand, what does he mean by perfect? I can't be perfect. That's kind of a high bar. Um can't be completely perfect and then others are saying yes it means perfect our goal is to be perfect we're supposed to be perfect like God and a constant reminder that we're not perfect and you ever been caught in a gospel doctrine debate on being perfect and everybody's got their explanation about how to be perfect and what perfect looks like the writers of Luke jump right by that and change it completely to what I think is the most accurate reading of what the Lord actually said in this setting to the disciples with the, the crowd listening behind. Directed to the disciples, he's going to say very clearly, Be ye therefore merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Peter, Simon, Matthew, be merciful to them as I just was. And that is perfection. 
I believe. Perfection, being made perfect, is being made and transformed into merciful people. With perfect mercy suited to live in the celestial kingdom. Be ye therefore merciful. Because in this case, he's not talking about the Father in heaven as an embodiment of perfection. He's talking about Father in heaven as the embodiment of mercy. Meaning perfection. That is, I think, the best explanation for mercy. It is being like Father in heaven who is perfectly merciful. And if they needed an explanation of what mercy looked like, they had just watched him touched by everyone and everybody, regardless of what they were, he was encountering, and everyone was healed. And as a result of that, they were now staying to listen to him as he trains his disciples. Be therefore merciful. Now, for a believing Jew at that time, there would be a good question of what mercy looks like. Because you still got that law of Moses and it seems like it's prescribing some prescriptions and uh, things that you're not supposed to do to be merciful, but it counters what we just saw. So Jesus is now going to explain more in depth in Luke 6 exactly what he means by being merciful. And what we're going to get in here is a parable. And it's a, it's a parable in three parts. Now, there's another three-part parable that he will talk about later, and it's the parable where he talks about lost sheep and lost coins and lost boys, the prodigal son is a three-part parable. This parable in Luke 6 is also another uh, three-part parable defining mercy, I believe. If you look at how it's truncated uh, and, and put together. So, let's talk about this three-part parable and what it means, I think, uh, to us. He starts off, Is a blind person able to lead a blind person? Will not both of them fall into a pit? King James Version says, Can the blind lead the blind? Now, stop for a second and, and think about this one, okay? Can the blind lead the blind? Well, no. Why would the blind try to lead the blind? If you're blind, you'd need to be led. Why would, the, why would a blind person try to lead another blind person? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the blind might try to lead the blind, especially in this case, if they don't know yet that they're blind. They don't think they're blind. I can do this. I'm not blind. I can see. I'm going to go forward. Okay? 
So in something about them tells them or has them convinced that they're just not blind to start with. Now, the weird part about that is, uh, and the hard part about this, is that the blind person being led by the other blind person may not know that they're being led by a blind person. On social media all the time, we, have, we now have a category of people, uh, and, and these are opinion leaders, and these are opinion persuaders, people of persuasion. And many people follow them and their thoughts and their ideas. They are opinion leaders. And we don't know whether they're blind or not. Could easily be a case. They could be as blind as the people following them. But it doesn't matter because the people following them believe they can see. Even if they can't. We see a lot of cases of the blind leading the blind because the one doing the leading doesn't yet know that they're blind. Now, let me break in. Remember, this is being directed to the disciples and the newly minted 12 by Jesus with this group of people over his shoulder. Who's blind? And in this case, blinded. Or maybe never able to be able to see. Okay? So here's the first part. Now, can a blind person is able to lead a blind person? Will not both of them fall into the pit? Yes, they will. Um, now, then he's going to he's going to make sure that you know that this talk about blindness is not like the blind he just healed. This really is about discipleship and teaching others. A disciple is not above his teacher. They are the same. But everyone who is fully trained, 12 disciples, is like his teacher. But what he's actually saying is, you've been blind. You, are, you can't immediately go out and teach them because you are as blind, you guys, as they are blind behind me. And if this blind leads that blind, they'll both fall into the, the ditch. And it's my job to help bring you light. I am the way. I am the life and the light. So, and, and in fact, in the, in the synagogue, in his very first recorded uh, speech, in the synagogue in uh, Nazareth at the beginning, in Luke 4, He's going to say that he has been called, he's quoting Isaiah, he's been called to bring light to the blind, help the blind to see and, re and release the captives. Okay, It's my job to help the blind to see. It's my job, 12, to clear your blindness so that you can help them see. Now, to drive home that point, here's the second part of the parable. And in some ways, I think this is the most misunderstood, one of Jesus' most misunderstood statements. 
Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not consider the log that's in your own eye? The King James Version uses uh, that you're going to have a, uh, a beam and a moat. And it's the, same, it's the same idea, only th this makes more sense. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not consider the log that's in your own eye? Now, why this is so greatly misunderstood, we tend to take this and, and use this, and it gets quoted a lot. And it basically says this, don't judge. Don't judge anybody. If you come across somebody that has a small sin... You have your own sins, Bubba. <laughs> you know, go take care of your own stuff and quit bugging people. In fact, yours is probably bigger. You hypocrite! You got all kinds of sins. They got small sins. You're bugging them on theirs. Don't judge. Don't judge me because I have sins. So we tend to make this all about judging, and I suppose there is a certain level at which that works. That's not Jesus' intent at this moment to the twelve with the crowd think think about this why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but do not consider the log that's in your own eye I remember uh, a, a number of years ago when I, was when I first got contact lenses and I was trying to figure out how to learn how to put contact lenses in my eye and in the rush of a morning getting ready for work uh, instead of putting a uh, uh, wetting solution in my contact, I put heavy-duty cleaning solution in my contact and popped that in my eye. Uh, and basically my head blew up. <laughs> you know, it hurt so bad. And it, it took everything. And, I, and in the midst of doing my little dance around the bathroom while I'm clawing at my eye, trying to get this contact out of my eye, uh, and my eye is turning red and it's running like crazy. Um, at that moment, nothing else existed in the entire world but my eyeball. <laughs> and, and having something in my eye was so painful and distracting and, and overcome everything, I couldn't have even told you my name at that point. I'm just clawing at my eye trying to get this painful contact at, that was burning my eye. If, if your brother has a splinter in their eye and you decide that this is about judging so I'm going to walk away and work on my stuff what you just did was leave somebody standing there with a splinter in their eye you haven't helped them at all they're hurting they have a splinter in their eye you know you don't walk away from somebody that's in pain like that. Jesus didn't talk about big and little sins. He talked about logs and splinters with all the painfulness of a splinter. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but do not consider the log that's in your own eye? So what are we supposed to do here? Well, he says, How are you able to say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, but you do not, do not see the log in your own eye. Your job, Peter, your job, Andrew, 
is to remove the splinters from their eyes that block them from seeing me fully. Matthew, it's your job to remove whatever logs or impediments are in your vision that block your ability to lovingly, carefully, without judgment, remove a tiny splinter from somebody's eye that is clouding their vision and causing them not to be able to see and causing them pain and hurt and because they can't see me with a splinter in their eye. You're in the splinter removal business. Your job is to remove that splinter, not walk away and work on your own stuff. Quickly take care of your stuff and as fast as possible get to the splinter removal business. Get this thing done. Now, so we really are talking about people that have not blind from birth, but blinded. Blinded by well, what? Okay? Well, hypocrite, those that are going to... Uh, hypocrite then is like an echo chamber. You're just going to repeat what you have heard. It's an empty without substance. That was the term for hypocrite uh, back then. Kind of empty. First, take the log from your own eye then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye I intend you to remove splinters so work on undoing that now so I want to take just a second uh, and then we'll look at the last part of the parable and then we will be done uh, causes of blindness okay He's given us two causes of blindness. One on the part of disciples and one on the part of the blind that are following the blind uh, where neither one can see. Doesn't matter whether you've got a log or a splinter. You're both blind. That's why these parables tie together. I, I was thinking about a number of logs that disciples or teachers might have. We might have hobby horses. Uh, at this time, there's a lot of hobby horsing going along with, oh, it's a pandemic, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, it's, you know, it's racial wars and stuff like that. The second coming is like right there. It's just, it's about to happen, and it's lighting up all of the people for whom the second coming theology uh, is, is a big deal. So you might have a hobby horse. And you're going to try and teach somebody, but you keep using the same hobby horse. Uh, Boyd K. Packer used to talk about pounding the same key on a keyboard, on a piano, over and over and over and over and over. It's all you got. Well, sometimes people are caught in that. Sometimes it's our own securities. Picture whether it was Joseph Smith or Moses or Enoch that tried to say, I'm not, I can't teach. I'm but a lad and all the people hate me. You know, I have my own securities. I can't be a teacher. Um, I just can't do this. And that becomes for them a log that blinds them to their own abilities to listen to the Spirit and simply share what the Spirit teaches them to teach other people. But it's left them blind. 
and they and they will and that will leave them unable to bring light to other people because they don't yet have light in them. So sometimes it's insecurities, sometimes it's pride that gets in the way. I think I know. I'm not blind. I see things very clearly. You can't tell me anything. You can't bring me light and knowledge because I know already. I'm, I'm not going to receive any of that. Sometimes it's false traditions. We simply teach what we've always heard without always considering if additional light and knowledge, which traditions do we hold on to are true and which ones might be false traditions. I think about all of the people uh, for decades and decades and decades that always taught uh, that uh, the priesthood was being withheld from those of African American descent because somehow they were fence sitters in the pre-existence or because they were descendants of Cain Cain's descendants wouldn't get it until after Abel's did there are a lot of explanations that go with that they were false traditions taught over and over and over until ultimately it took a prophet of God to say they're false none of which are true never were true but we caught, get caught in echo chambers uh, repeating false traditions that gets in the way of us being able to teach as disciples now we, now, as a disciple we may be also trying to teach the blind and they have splinters oh, there may be some cultural bias I wish we had time to get into that one Spirit, but we're trying to teach sometimes people with spiritual splinters they also have false traditions of the fathers how many times as missionaries have we lovingly tried to approach somebody who was Catholic and they said I'm Catholic my father was Catholic His father, I will be Catholic. I am Catholic it's not a religion it's who I am okay well that, that could be a spiritual splinter False understanding of God. God doesn't love someone like me. That's not how God works. Um, sometimes people have tried to say, well, you, you Mormons worship uh, a different Jesus. And there's a certain part of that that is really wrong. That's a false tradition. <laughs> But there might be some truth to that as well, that yes, there is some aspects about Jesus' additional light and knowledge that he would come to the Americas, that he would do certain things, that he would provide a way for people after this life to still be receive baptism. And yes, there are things about our Jesus that is going to be different, and you have a false understanding of how powerful God can really be uh, in sharing the gospel on both sides of the veil for instance. Uh, also pride. Have a hard time uh, accepting that. Okay? Sometimes that spiritual splendor is just a fear of change or a fear of the unknown. I don't know what's coming. You're teaching some things to me that means I'm going to have to do things differently and suddenly it's a brave new world and I don't have any understanding about what's coming next and that scares me. And I don't know. That fearful splinter might keep somebody blind. 
because they're worried for all the wrong reasons about what it is that this new light will require of them in the things that that they will do need to do now one of the uh, uh, great statements I think from the prophet Joseph Smith which I think is to a certain extent embodies certainly what the Savior was trying to teach the newly minted 12 and the disciples on that plain in Galilee and wanted them to actually know how blind they really were and how he needed to open up their eyes of their understanding to use Joseph Smith's phrase from the Kirtland Temple the eyes of our understanding were open our blindness was cleared up and we saw the Lord. Section 110. Um, from Liberty Jail, afterwards, after all of the glory of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph will write from filthy, cold, dark, depressing Liberty Jail. And the revelations that he receives there make this what uh, B.H. Robert called, Roberts called uh, a uh, prison temple, that there was light and knowledge that cleared up Joseph Smith's blindness on certain things. Joseph then wrote in a letter to the saints, and what he said basically was this. The things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out in order to remove the logs and beams in your own eye. Thy mind, O man, he says, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the lowest considerations of the deepest abyss and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse he must commune with God that's not bad for a man with a sixth grade education, <laughs> by the way. Thy, man, thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul to salvation, in order that your beams and logs will be cleared from your mind so that you can remove their splinters, must stretch and must help them stretch as high as the utmost heavens. Search into the deepest abyss, he must commune with God. And then as he contemplates all of that, he says, how much more dignified and noble are the thoughts of God than the vain imaginations of the human heart. None but fools will trifle with the souls of men. None but fools will trifle 
with the souls of men. Don't be blind. Don't think that you can lead the blind. You're not just dealing with the life of a person. You're dealing with their soul and you must love them deeply, mercifully, as you lead them to God with all your heart. Love them. Now, in closing then, he finishes then uh, this parable, the third part. A good tree cannot make bad fruit, nor can a bad tree make good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. You will know how you are, how your thoughts are. But look at what he describes as good fruit. The good person brings forth good fruit from where? Where is this good tree? Think about Alma 32, 28 and the planting of the seed and all that. Okay, it ties in. The good person brings forth good from the treasury of the heart. The King James Version made it uh, the treasure in your heart. Um, Tom Wayman in this LDS version has done a good job of making this an actual location in your heart. A good person brings forth good treasure that exists and lives in this treasury in your heart where you have treasured the word of God and treasured deeds of kindness and mercy and love and it lives there in the treasury of the heart. And the evil person brings forth evil treasures from the heart. And then he finishes with this. From the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you would bring a soul to God and trifle with the souls of men, that blindness can be cleared up as you draw forth from the good treasures of your heart. And, and that mercy and that love will change them and bring them light. That's your responsibility, Quorum of the Twelve, disciples, to this mixed group of people down here who are now listening and ready. Go teach them and love them and mingle with them. Touch them touch the eyes of their understanding as well, and bring them home. I bear you my testimony that the Lord intends us to lead souls to God. And it's our job to remove those impediments so that we can remove those splinters from them and bring them home. I pray that we can do that. Uh, in all that we do and all of our callings, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.